Today I'd like to talk to you about something that I know that each of you faces every day. I wouldn't be surprised at all if I asked the question this morning. I mean, right here on Sunday morning, if I asked you, was there something that you were tempted to do today besides go to church, that I wouldn't be surprised that there wouldn't be some of you would say, well, yes, uh, there was something that I, else that I wanted to do today. I was tempted to do something else rather than to come to God's house today. Now, perhaps I should ask that question at the night service when the Super Bowl is on. That might be a better question then. But thank the Lord that you did resist that temptation and you did come to church today. But there's always that constant struggle to do the exact opposite of what you know is right and what you know that you ought to do. You've always had that struggle all of your life. I mean, from the time that you were just a child, there was always that temptation not to do what your mom told you. And when you didn't, things always didn't work out very well. I can remember when I was just about five or six years old that I faced one of the earliest battles with temptations, and I lost this one. Uh, Back when I was young, we used to live just a couple of blocks from the corner market where my mother used to do the grocery shopping. And uh, back in those days, many, many, many years ago, it was safe for children to walk down the street. And so I would sometimes go by myself and I'd walk those couple of blocks and I would go to the store and look around a little bit and talk to Mr. Wiley, who was the store owner. One day I was in the store and I spotted this really neat toy spaceship. And this was just, it was just incredible. I mean, to me it was. I mean, it was a little toy spaceship. It had a plastic antenna on top that went round and round. And when you set it down on the floor, it made all these beeping and, and whizzing and whirring sounds. And it was just, just an incredible thing. And I thought, I have got to buy that. I've got to have that. So I walked home from the store that day, and I was thinking all the way, uh, how am I going to get this? I really need this, because uh, I'll just be the envy of all of my friends if I can buy that spaceship. So I walked home trying to figure that out, and when I got home, I asked my mother, I said, would you give me the money to go buy that spaceship? And she said, no. We didn't always get what we wanted back then, and so she said, no, she wouldn't give it to me. Well, she wasn't looking. And so uh, while she was occupied with something else, I went over to her purse and I slipped a $5 bill out and I went back to the store and I gave that to Mr. Wiley and I bought that spaceship. So I brought it home and I was thinking about how much fun that would be. But I had one problem and that was there was no way to play with it without it making all those whirling and beeping and sounds. And so the first time that I turned it on and started to play with it, I was caught. My mother caught me. Now she didn't always whip me. She didn't punish me. She, she deferred that to my dad and waited till he got home. And he was one who very firmly believed that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. And he definitely did not want me to be spoiled. And so I learned right then what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And that temptation was never successful on me again. But you know something? It wasn't the last time that I was tempted. And it wasn't the last time that I gave in to temptation. We all face that every single day of our lives, and it comes in different forms. But basically, all temptations come down to three different categories. The Apostle John tells us what those categories are in 1 John chapter 2. He said, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the areas where all temptations lie. In this fourth chapter of Matthew, uh, we see the true humanity of Christ as Satan comes to him and he tempts him in each of those three categories. His purpose is that he would destroy Jesus, who is the sinless one. And if Jesus were to commit even one sin, then his purpose here on this earth would be defeated. I'd like for us to read about that today, and we're going to discuss the temptations of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse number 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward a-hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God... Command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up unto an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we ask you, Lord, that you would open up this text before us today. Help us to understand a little bit better your word, and that we might see how Jesus was tempted, how he resisted temptation, and how that we can do the same through the same power that was available to him. Bless in this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today I've titled the message, The Temptations of Christ. That's only accurate in one sense because uh, this is not the only temptations that Christ would face. This is simply the first temptations that we know about. There are three temptations that are given here, and they cover those three areas that I spoke of earlier. But as I said, this is no means the first time that Jesus was tempted. The Bible is silent about the life of Jesus from the time that he was eight days old up until the time that he was baptized by John the Baptist. We only have one incident in the Scripture that tells about Jesus' early life. That's in the book of Luke where it says that Jesus was in the temple at the age of 12 years old. And there he was discussing the Scriptures with the, with the scribes and the priest. But other than that, we, we really don't know anything about Jesus' early life. But I'm sure of this, that Jesus was just like every other person in the world. He, he was born into the world, and just like us, there was not one day in those 30 years up to the time that he began his public ministry that he wasn't tempted. Uh, he was tempted just like we are. And so as a young child, he was tempted with the same temptations that I had. When I was tempted to go over and take that $5 bill out of my mother's purse, Jesus experienced similar temptations as a child. 
As a teenager, he faced the same things that our teenagers today, not in exactly the same form, but uh, different kinds of temptations. As a young man, he faced those as a teenager and a young man as he began to enter into his public ministry. Now, the difference between you and me and Jesus is that Jesus never once yielded to any temptation. He never committed any sin. He never became guilty of any sin against God. He was able to resist his temptations by the very same power that's available to all of us today. Now, his ability to resist Satan was not for Satan's lack of trying, because here we find in the Scriptures that Satan had him in his very weakest moment, the weakest moment of his life up until this time, and Satan came to tempt him. I want to talk about Jesus' temptation today, but there's so much here to cover that I can't cover it all in this sermon this morning. So next week we're going to come back and we'll get part number two of this sermon and we'll look at a little bit more of the practical applications of what we are to learn here. But let's see if we can just sort of set all that up as we look into the Scriptures today, part number one of this sermon on a very important subject. We find the story of Christ's temptation in three of the gospel accounts. Mark records it in just two verses. In the book of Luke, we find it there, and Luke is a little bit more detailed, but there he reverses the second and the third temptations that Christ experienced. But we're going to look into this today, and let's see what we can learn about it. First of all, I want to talk about Jesus' adversity in the temptation. One of the most peculiar aspects of the temptation is what we read here in verse number 1. Uh, This verse says, the scripture says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Why would the Holy Spirit put Jesus in such a position? Why wasn't it that the Holy Spirit very carefully guarded him so that there was no chance that Jesus would ever be tempted enough that he would sin? Why didn't the Holy Spirit protect him? And why did God lead Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted of the devil? Now, there are actually uh, two things that are going on here, and it depends on whose viewpoint that you're looking at it. Now, first, there's God's viewpoint, and there's God's purpose in the temptation, and God's purpose is to test his humanity. The word tempt in the Scripture has two different meanings, and the first one is to prove something. It's to test something, and this is what God was doing with Jesus. He, He... put Jesus in the worst circumstances that were possible. He gave him every incentive that there was to do wrong, and yet Jesus would not sin. And God put him there to prove up, to prove that Jesus could bear up under the very worst of circumstances that he could be put through. In 1988, you may remember, there was a movie that came out that was called The Last Temptation of Christ. That was a very blasphemous movie, and I don't have time to give you a movie review today. But in this movie, they had just a very, a very totally unbiblical view of this temptation. Now, they approached the subject in such a manner that they made it look like Christ could have sinned because he contemplated in his life these temptations that Satan brought to him, and he considered them from some kind of lust that would be in his heart. But as we think about this subject today, I want to assure you of one thing that's very important. Jesus could not have sinned. He didn't have a sin nature. And we talked about that when we spoke about the virgin birth in the beginning of the book of Matthew. Jesus could not sin because he didn't have a sin nature. And if Jesus could have sinned, 
then we would not have any assurance at all that sometime in the future Jesus might fail us and that he couldn't be the Son of God. But Jesus could not sin. He was tempted in ways like we are. I mean, he was as human as we are in that sense. He could be tempted in the same ways that we're tempted, but he was not like us in this sense, and that is that there was no sinful nature there. There was no lust in his heart. There was no, no uh, uh, incentive there that came from within him that would cause him to sin. Satan could not drive him to sin. So God didn't lead Jesus into the wilderness to see if he could sin, but to prove to us that he would not sin, that he could take it all, and he would come into the perfect obedience of the Father's will. Now, Jesus' purpose in the world was to save mankind from our sins and and to restore what was lost when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. So as we study the temptation, no uh, study of this could be complete unless we look at the difference between those two temptations. What was it like for Jesus, and what was it like for Adam when both of them were tempted? Now, first of all, we're going to look at Jesus. Jesus was tempted under the worst of conditions, and he did not fall. The place of the temptation and the circumstances of this temptation are very much different than we find in the case of Adam. And it's very important that we consider the the conditions under which Jesus was tempted. Jesus was led into the wilderness. Now, that's an area that's south of Jerusalem, uh, south uh, in the southern part of Israel, It's the place uh, near the Dead Sea, which is a very hot, arid, very difficult place to exist. The Dead Sea is 1,378 feet below sea level, and it's what we would call that particular area there one of the most God-forsaken places upon this entire earth. If you left somebody out there in the middle of the summertime in that heat with the elements, nothing to eat for 40 days, then a person who was in that condition, in a weakened condition, would do everything that they could to find relief. Well, that's where Jesus was brought. He was brought to be tested in the desert. The worst of conditions were placed upon him, and everything that Satan could throw at him was tried, and still Jesus would not sin. Now, also, Jesus was alone. There wasn't anybody there to comfort him. There wasn't anybody to help him. You know, I've never been alone for 40 days, but I do know this, that misery loves, com- loves company. And, and, you know, when, I, when I'm alone or when I have troubles, when I have problems in my life, I like to have my wife near me. I like to have her there to, to hold my hand and to encourage me, even rub my back a little bit. I like to have my wife there. But Jesus didn't have anyone. He was going through the very worst of times. There was no one there that was with him. Even the angels that are ministering spirits, they were told, stay away from him. Don't give him any help. Not until this testing is over. But on the other hand, we look at Adam. Adam was tempted under the best of conditions, and he did not stand. Adam was put into a beautifully climate-controlled garden. Adam could have everything that he wanted. When he was hungry, all that he needed to do was just reach up and grab a fruit off of one of the trees. He could walk through the garden and pick the vegetables and prepare himself a meal. He could satisfy his hunger. He could take his ease. He could rest. Everything was right there for him. Everything that he needed was there. Adam was in a perfect environment, and yet he sinned against God. And also, Adam had a helper there. Remember Eve? Eve was his wife, and she was a perfect woman. She must have been totally stunning as a perfect woman. 
You know, I live with a perfect woman, and I can tell you it's a delight to live with her. She told me that she was perfect, and I believe every word of it. So here you have a perfect man, and you have a perfect woman, just like we have at our house, and they couldn't stay out of trouble either. And so with this perfect environment, with perfect companionship, with the ideal that's set up for them there, so much that still today that we call the place where Adam and Eve lived, paradise. With all of that, with everything that they wanted, everything perfect for them, Adam sinned. And when all of that fell apart, you know what he did? He blamed the woman. And I do that too. When things go wrong, I blame her. But God tested Adam. God, God tested him, and Adam fell. He couldn't withstand his temptations. And God tested Jesus to show us that he would not do as Adam did. He was superior to Adam in every way. And under the worst of trials, Jesus would not fail us. He would always do the Father's will, no matter how much he suffered for doing it. So here is God's purpose then. It's to show us the humanity of Christ. Show show us in his humanity that he would not sin. And this is a demonstration of what we talked about last week when Jesus was baptized and the Heavenly Father spoke and he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so the demonstration of Christ's perfection, of his holiness, of his steadfastness under worst, the very worst of conditions, that gives us the confidence that he'll never fail us. The writers of the New Testament had confidence in Jesus. Paul said he knew no sin. Peter said he did no sin. John said in him was no sin. And each of those men were able to bear up under the adversities they faced because Jesus remained pure in all of his temptations. Now that's God's viewpoint. That's the testing. It's a time of trial for the humanity of Christ. The second Adam would not do what the first Adam did. This was a testing to exalt Christ and to show us who he truly is, the magnificence of his humanity. In Philippians it says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We're all after Adam, and so we can have no confidence in the flesh, but we can have confidence in Jesus Christ. Now on the other hand, We look at the devil's viewpoint, because Satan had a purpose as well. And Satan's purpose was to tear down his deity. The first meaning of tempt in the scriptures is to prove, it's to test. But the second meaning of this word is the one that we most often associate with it, and that is to entice. It means to lure. Satan has only had one purpose, and that is to tear down God. He's always been in direct confrontation with God. And if Satan could get God to commit even one sin, then God can no longer be God. And so his purpose is fulfilled. His purpose is short and sweet. That's to oppose everything about God. So if Jesus makes even one false move, even in the slightest degree, if he cracks, if he commits even what we would call the very smallest of sins, then he can't be God. He ceases to be God. And I don't even want to think about what would happen if God is no longer God. If for one moment that God ceased to be God, we don't even have the ability to fathom what would happen then. I don't even Satan knows what, think he even knows what kind of chain reaction that would set off if God sinned, if God is no longer God. 
But somehow in Satan's mind, he says, this is the thing that I must do. He only has one purpose, and that's to get Jesus to sin and to tear down his deity. And if he can do that, he achieves what he believes is his objective. What is the objective? Well, Isaiah quotes the very words of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And that has been the cosmic struggle from the foundation of the world. That Satan desires to sit in God's seat. And so Satan tempted Adam. He enticed him to sin in order that he might corrupt God's creation. And Satan figured that if I can do this, then I'm one step closer to corrupting God himself and taking over his throne. So oppose and defeat God. That's what Satan is up to. It's what it's always been about. And none of us should be so short-sighted as to think that when we sin against God, that that is not Satan's attempt to try to dethrone God. And so what God, or rather Satan, does with God's people, he sifts through us, he goes through us, he attacks us in every way that's possible. He throws everything at us because he ultimately wants to defeat us. And if he can defeat even one of us, if he can keep us from our safety, our security, from the promises of God that we'll be in heaven because we're believers in him, if Satan can do that, he's one step up the ladder defeating God himself. And so here is Satan, after all of the centuries, what he thinks is now a perfect setup. He has his very best best opportunity. Never before has God been so vulnerable in all the history of creation. Never has he been so vulnerable. And God made himself so because God said, I'll take on flesh, I'll become human, I'll come to this world. Satan never had an opportunity like this before. He has the perfect setup. Jesus there in the wilderness, hungry, thirsting, desiring to end that, and yet he would not sin against God. Now make no mistake about this, friends. This is a confrontation of mammoth proportions with incalculable repercussions. If you read this and you don't think about it, and you don't think of what would happen if Satan was successful here, then you'll never appreciate why it was so necessary that Christ withstand God's test of his humanity and that he resist Satan's attempts to tear down his deity. Now let's go on and let's discuss next Satan's strategy in the temptation. I'll just get started on this today. We're just going to talk about the first temptation. Next week we come back and we'll talk about the others. But Satan went after Jesus in the best way that he knew how. He tried one temptation, and when that didn't work, he tried a second one. Tried a third temptation, a second temptation. When that didn't work, then he went on to a third one. So what is the strategy? Well, first of all, he tried to get Jesus to sin against God's providence. Here we have Jesus in a weakened position. He has no food for 40 days. He was hungry. And so Satan came to him to tempt him to reject God's providence. Now, it's interesting that both Jesus and Adam were tempted in the very same area, first of all. They were tempted with food. We're talking about that decadent chocolate fellowship that we're going to have. We're tempted with food, and most of us can still not resist that kind of temptation. But here in verse number 3, it says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. That's so unreasonable. It's so unreasonable for Jesus to do this. He's tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty. Is it so unreasonable that Jesus would 
right now or right then, not in this problem. I mean, he could turn the stones into bread. He could fix that. All that Jesus needs to do is just speak the word and stones turn into bread. He has the power to do it. But if he had done this, then he would have rejected God's providence. Now think about the question that Satan is asking when he comes to Jesus. What does he really have on his mind? Well, in his mind, he's saying to Jesus, Is God concerned about you? Does God really care what you're going through? Will God make provision for you? After all, you've been out here in the wilderness for this 40 days. God hasn't given you anything. And so he comes and he tempts him with this this food. Make the stones into bread. And do you know the very first doubt that Satan put into Adam's mind was, Adam, God doesn't really care about you. Because if God cared cared about you, then he would give you the very best that he has. He wouldn't withhold anything from you. He would let you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what's best for you. You need that, Adam. Take that. God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have the same abilities. He doesn't want you to have the same power, the same knowledge. So, Adam, take that because that's best for you. And, Adam, if you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. So, Satan worked on Adam to circumvent God's providence, that God would not supply everything that he needed in due time. And the very same tactic is used on Jesus. He attacked him from the angle of the lust of the flesh. I know what I need better than what God knows that I need. God cannot satisfy my needs. Now, it's interesting that Jesus came back with the Scripture, and he does this in all three of the temptations, and we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. But Jesus came back with the Scriptures, and he said, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Father, or out of God. Have you ever thought seriously about what that statement means? What, what did Jesus mean by that? I mean, how can you live by words that come from the mouth of God? Well, it seems that bread right here, right now, having that physical bread, that's the very best thing for us. How are we going to live by the words of God? Now, I want to remind you of one thing, that everything that you read in the Bible, every word that's written in the Scriptures are God's words. Everything that's said there is God's words. Now, Jesus knew what all of the words in the Bible would be before they were even spoken, because the Bible says that God's word is forever settled in heaven. So Jesus knew what every word of Scripture would be. And that's why I want to tell you something. You don't want to mess with God's Word. Don't mess with God's Word. Today they have a, we have a lot of new Bible translations that are out. And you can read these new translations. I advise you to be very careful about what you're reading, that you're not reading man's words instead of God's words. I'd rather be safe. I, I stick with the good old King James Bible. I have confidence in that. I have confidence that that's God's revealed word to us. But some of the words in Scripture were not written down at the time that Jesus spoke this. Later on, Paul would speak under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he said, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God will give you what you need. So Jesus didn't need to supernaturally turn stones into bread. Because when God told him to come to this earth, God promised him that he would supply him with everything that he needed. God's not short in his providence. So he doesn't need to make stones into bread. 
And the reason that he didn't is because you and I don't have the ability to do that. And Jesus, or God rather, did not want Jesus to do anything to resist the devil in any way that we don't also have the power to do. A power that's not available to us. So God hasn't given us that kind of power. He expects us to trust him for what we need. Scripture says we walk by faith and not by sight. And so if Jesus had turned these stones into bread, he would display his lack of faith in God. And the Scripture also says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so if Jesus had done this, he would have sinned. And Satan accomplishes his purposes. But God wants us to take what we can't see, or he doesn't want us to take what we can't see. He wants us to have faith that he will provide for what we can't see. He, wants, or he doesn't want us to have what we can't see, provide what we can't see. And so in the end of the temptation, God did exactly as God always does. He supplied the need. Now here's the problem with many of us. We think that God is not taking care of us because we don't have what we want. The need is not the problem anymore. It's the thing that we want. And we think that because we don't have what we want, God doesn't take care of us. But I but I'd want to ask every Christian here today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, can you honestly say, I don't have what I need? I don't have the very basic necessities of life and the very things that I need to survive? I don't have those? I don't think there's a Christian today who would say that. You see, we're discontent not because we don't have the needs, but because we don't have our wants. We're no longer concerned with the needs. And so, if we don't have the wants, then we turn out to be very unhappy Christians. God hasn't given us all that we want. But Jesus didn't live by the wants. The only thing that he really wanted was to do his Father's will. But did you know that there is an opposing theology today that comes straight from the tackle box of Satan? Satan has his lures. Temptations, those are are Satan's lures, and they're given to entice us to sin. And I would have to tell you that Satan has some fishing buddies today. He takes some things, or they take some things right out of Satan's tackle box, and they throw out the lures to try to entice people. One of his buddies has curly hair, and he preaches at one of the largest churches in America today, located in Houston, Texas. Another of his buddies preaches in a dress and has dangly earrings and, and women and sorry henpecked men sitting and listen to her. And these buddies of Satan's, Osteen and Meyer, among any others that come on television, will tell you that you deserve earth's best. What you deserve is what, not what you necessarily need, but you deserve everything that you want. And you need to be so brazen that you can demand what you want from God. They say, you're God's child, and God doesn't want you to live in poverty. God doesn't want you to drive an old car. God doesn't want you to rent. He doesn't want you to earn minimum wage. God has so much more. There's so much out there. And what you need to do, you need to go claim that. You need to say it's yours. It's sinful for you to be satisfied with what you have. You've got to have more. And so you go and you demand it from God. Claim it. And you tell God, I will not be satisfied until I have everything that I want. Osteen even says that he expects that he will be favored by the world because God has made it so. And do you know what that is? That's Satan's lie. It's Satan's lie that says it's all right to turn stones into bread. 
You shouldn't be satisfied with what you have. You deserve so much more, and you need to go seize it. Make that happen. Now, do you know what I, what I see when I hear that? I see a serpent in the Garden of Eden raising his head, and he's got a curly wig, and he grins like a Cheshire cat. And he says, you can have anything that you want. Satan's throwing out the lure to get you to resist God's providence. Now, let me ask you, can you show me one example in the New Testament where one time that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, and I will make you healthy, and I will make you wealthy. If you can show that to me, I'll believe it. If you can show me an instance in the Scriptures where those who knew Christ best and who walked with him every day became wealthy and became famous and became acclaimed by the world, for, for what they did in following him. They received fortune. If you can show me that, and show me that they were favored by the world, then I'll believe it. But you can't show me that, and I can't show you that. But I can show you men and women who live lives of poverty. They gave their lives for Christ. They gave up all for him. There was not one single rich apostle. All of them died martyred deaths except one, And that was the Apostle John, and he's not a very good exception because they boiled him in oil trying to kill him. And when he survived, they banished him to a rocky island in the Aegean Sea. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus said, my meat is to do my Father's will. Now let me finish part number one of the sermon with this thought. Your health, wealth, and your prosperity, those aren't your greatest needs. Your greatest need is not anything physical. Your greatest need is spiritual. Your greatest need is that your soul and your spirit are taken care of. Now let me tell you now how those two things, your soul and your spirit, can be taken care of. The Bible teaches that you're lost and you're helpless. You're out there in the wilderness of sin... And there's nothing at all that you can do to help yourself. You're in this wilderness of sin, and you sin every day, not because it's the devil's fault, not because the devil came and tempted you, certainly not because it's God's fault. The Bible teaches that you are responsible for your own sin in the same way that Adam was responsible for his. Now, Adam wasn't able to take care of his sin. There's nothing Adam could do at all about it. Only God could do it for him. And the same thing is true of everyone here today. We must have God take care of our sins. The Bible says that every transgression, every sin against God, will bring a just recompense of reward. You know what the reward is? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The reward for sin is death. Not just physical death, but also spiritual death. And what that means is the reward for our sins is that everyone without Jesus Christ must suffer in the eternal fires of hell. But the Bible doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us out there in the wilderness because it tells us God sent his own son. God sent his son into the world and he came to pay sin's penalty for us and he came to be raised from the dead physically so that we could be raised from the dead physically and spiritually. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus conquered temptations. He didn't sin, and because he did not sin, he's able to save you from your sins. 
How does he do that? Well, the Bible teaches that he does it by his blood. It's by his death on the cross of Calvary. That's how Jesus pays for our sins. It's the only thing that God will accept. He won't accept anything that we do. He won't accept anything that we offer. The only thing that God accepts for the payment of our sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood is appropriated to us. It's given to us. The power of that blood is given to us by faith. We trust him. We believe that Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins. Now that power... That salvation, that security is available for every person in this room today. All that we need do is trust him for us, for it. Jesus could not sin so that he could save you from your sins. And that's why he never gave in to a temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you. We look at your word and we see Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, No sin in his life, no evil was ever present in him. And Jesus went to the cross as a willing sacrifice for our sins. He paid the penalty that we would have to pay. And we just thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus, your son, into the world to die for us. I ask you, Lord, you might speak to some person's heart today that if they don't know you as Savior, that they might realize today what Jesus came into this world to do. He could not be conquered by sin so that he could conquer sin. Lord, speak to someone's heart today. For every Christian that's here this morning, help us to understand that the power to live in your will, the power to live a Christian life, is not in us, but in you. You provide all the power that we need. It's available for every person here today. Bless in this invitation time. Lord, speak to our hearts. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.